Hey friends! This past weekend, I was a part of the Intelligent Speech Conference where I presented on Shackleton's Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. Since Shackleton has been my most popular podcast subject, I thought I would share the presentation with you as much as I could. The actual conference presentation had slides featuring some of Frank Hurley's century-old photography, and when the video for that comes out, I'll be sharing that with my patrons. This is the Cliff Notes version of Shackleton's story. Originally, this piece of history took five episodes and a couple hundred pages of script to produce, so condensing it down into one presentation, or in this case one episode, was not easy. It was almost painful to have to cut out some of the details. If you're at all interested in Shackleton, or this story seems like something you'd want to explore more in depth, you should absolutely check out the five-part series I did last year. Although this single episode will give you the gist of things, it won't have the same depth in exploring the personalities of the crew, the psychological and physical challenges they experienced, the beauty that's in the details, or the drama. Because if you stick 28 people inside a freezer for two years and completely cut them off from the rest of the world while they slowly starve, there's gonna be drama. So, without further ado, here is the super-condensed story of Shackleton and the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. It kind of feels like we're going back to visit an old friend. Let's head back down to the Antarctic. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Shackleton's story begins in the heroic age of Arctic exploration, where the race for the Poles was fierce. It began in the end of the 19th century and ended with Shackleton's Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. It included expeditions led by explorers like Robert Peary, who reached the North Pole in 1909, and Roald Amundsen, who reached the South Pole in 1910. Ernest Henry Shackleton was born in County Kildare, Ireland, February 15, 1874. He joined the Navy at age 16. At 27, he joined Robert Falcon Scott on the Discovery Expedition, officially known as the British National Antarctic Expedition of 1901, but he had to go home early with a bad case of scurvy. He married Emily Dorman in 1904, and they had three children. In 1908, he went back to exploring, leading an expedition to the Antarctic. It's contested, but his team reached the magnetic South Pole and are usually credited for being the first to ever make it there. The geographical South Pole, however, was still up for grabs. Robert Scott would get there in January of 1912, half-starved with only five of his men still alive, only to find Norway's Roald Amundsen had beaten him there by 34 days. He and the rest of his men died of starvation and exposure on the journey back. And their bodies are still down there, covered with so much snow and ice, we'll never be able to retrieve them. Although both Poles were now spoken for, Britain and Shackleton still wanted a claim to polar fame. Shackleton spent four years raising money for the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. The goal of the expedition was to be the first to walk across the entire continent of Antarctica on foot. To him, this was the last great exploratory accomplishment to be made. Shackleton wrote of it, quote, From the sentimental point of view, it is the last great polar journey that can be made. 
It will be greater than the journey to the pole and back, and I feel it is up to the British nation to accomplish this, for we have been beaten at the conquest of the North Pole, and beaten at the first conquest of the South Pole. There now remains the largest and most striking of all journeys, the crossing of the continent." Unquote. The original plan consisted of two separate parties and two separate ships. The first ship was the Endurance, carrying the Weddell Sea Party, led by Shackleton. The Endurance was heading to the Weddell Sea on one side of the continent to set up base in the Vashel Bay area. From here, they would embark on the 1,800-mile, that's 2,900-kilometer journey across Antarctica until reaching the Ross Sea on the opposite side of the continent. Shackleton optimistically estimated the on-foot journey would take five months. A second crew, called the Ross Sea Party, would set up its base in McMurdo Sound on the other side of Antarctica. They were sailing on the Aurora. Their job was to lay supply caches at a series of depots headed toward the South Pole, then meet Shackleton's team when they were about two-thirds of the way over the continent. They would join up together and walk back to McMurdo Sound. This would ease the burden of Shackleton and the Weddell Sea Party, since they would have less supplies to carry and would know that they had food stores waiting for them two-thirds the way through the journey. This was all great on paper, and Shackleton was extremely confident in his plan, though it was being called too audacious by critics at the time. And it would be a huge disaster. The Ross Sea Party was led by Anias Lionel Action Mackintosh, a former British Merchant Navy officer and Antarctic explorer. He accepted the position of captain after two others had refused the role, citing it as an underfunded and poorly planned expedition. Mackintosh's ship, the Aurora, was not fit for Antarctic exploration and had to undergo a massive rehaul. Some crew members quit before the Aurora left, not trusting that the expedition would succeed. They were right. The Aurora left on Christmas Day, 1914. When it reached McMurdo Sound, 18 crew members stayed behind with the ship, while the other 10 took dog teams to begin laying depots for Shackleton. Long, tragic story short, some of the crew suffered from scurvy, the Overland Party got lost for months, snow blindness, starvation, and frostbite were huge issues. Three of them would die in all, including McIntosh. The crew back with the ship was also suffering a tragic fate. The Aurora was caught in a vicious Antarctic storm. The anchors were ripped from the hull, and it was sent careening through the pack ice for 312 days, 700 miles, or 1,100 kilometers before reaching open sea. It barely made it into a port in New Zealand. The rest of the crew, stranded from the Ross Sea Party, were eventually rescued in 1917, three years after they had left home. That was longer than Shackleton's party had been lost. The Ross Sea Party was able to lay the depots for Shackleton, but it was all in vain, and Shackleton would never reach them. This whole story goes like that. Shackleton recruited 26 men to join him on his ship, the Endurance. This party was to be the one to cross the continent on foot. At least three women applied for the expedition, but this was 1914, and the glass ceiling was still made of concrete. Shackleton chose calm-natured, experienced, and loyal men for the officer spots, many of whom had already been on polar expeditions. But he didn't seem to worry too much about interviewing anyone else. It's said he hired the others based on whether or not he liked the look of them. And overall, it was a great crew. There was one stowaway, an 18-year-old named Pierce Blackborough, who only showed his face after it was too late for the ship to turn back home. 
Shackleton told him that if they had to eat anyone, he would be first. The day King George V presented the Union Jack to Shackleton to take on his journey was the same day that Britain declared war on Germany, entering into World War I. Shackleton and the crew offered to cancel the expedition in order to join the fight. Winston Churchill sent Shackleton a telegraph, thanking him for his offer to stay and fight, but insisting the expedition carry on. No one knew at this point how devastatingly bad World War I would get. The endurance left from Plymouth, England, the 8th of August, 1914. They reached a whaling station at South Georgia on November 5th, 1914. South Georgia is an island below the Antarctic Circle, a little over 1,700 miles, nearly 2,800 kilometers from the continent of Antarctica. This would be their last contact with civilization until their adventure was through. Whalers warned Shackleton that the pack ice in the Weddell Sea was the worst anyone had ever seen it and urged him to wait until the next season to begin the expedition, because their chances of getting trapped in the pack ice were high. Shackleton had waited four years already, and although he waited until December hoping for better conditions, he refused to postpone the expedition. The crew left for the continent of Antarctica despite warnings and poor conditions on December 5, 1914. They would never reach the continent. The Weddell Sea is roughly circular, and much of the ice formed there can't escape into the broader ocean where it would eventually melt. New ice can form there year-round, even in the summer. It was summer in the Southern Hemisphere at this point in their journey, so there was light 24 hours a day. They passed Christmas and New Year's on the ship, heralding in the year 1915. The ice was getting worse. Shackleton reported flows that were a mile long and wide, larger than he had ever seen before. They hit storms and moving ice flows. They became trapped in January by pack ice that surrounded the ship. On January 24th, an opening presented itself. A full head of steam was raised and the engines were put at full speed for hours, but they were unable to move. The ship's storekeeper, Ordelis, wrote that night in his journal saying the ship was, quote, frozen like an almond in the middle of a chocolate bar. To make matters worse, winter was coming. They tried to radio for help several times, but received nothing but static. They tried chopping the ship free for days, but this was futile. It became obvious to them that they would be stuck until spring. Shackleton gave the order for them to winter on the ship. The Endurance had sailed as far as it ever would, they just didn't know it yet. At this point, they still believed they would be the first to walk across the continent of Antarctica. They made the ship as comfortable as possible, and lovingly began referring to it as the Ritz. They were allowed to spend time off the ship and on the ice as long as they didn't wander too far and stayed together. They often played hockey and football on the ice floes of the Weddell Sea. The crew spent many hours training the sled dogs they had brought with them. They were excited when two of the dogs gave birth to surprise litters of puppies, and the crew took to them immediately. They constructed dogaloos out of snow and ice for the dogs next to the ship. They looked like doghouse-sized versions of igloos. This helped to free up some space on the ship. Hunting became an important pastime. They hadn't planned for an extra season and needed meat for the dogs, as well as blubber for the stove and lights. Some of the seals they killed were 400 pounds, 182 kilos, and hauling them back to the ship was an arduous task. This had to be done quickly, because if they didn't get a seal back to the ship before it froze, their hands would suffer severe frostbite as they butchered it. 
By May, they determined they had drifted with the ice around 130 miles, 210 kilometers. They were still trapped in roughly a million square miles of ice and were constantly drifting with the current of the Weddell Sea. Eventually, the sun dropped below the horizon, leaving them in darkness for months. This is called the polar night and can have serious psychological effects, including severe depression and sleep disorders. Despite the darkness, the crew remained in relatively high spirits for several months. They played pranks on one another, held mock trials and talent shows, and played games. Leonard Hussey, the meteorologist, brought a banjo, but only knew a handful of songs. These banjo songs would eventually be the only music the crew would hear for the better part of two years. They were passing the winter as best they could, but soon the pack ice began squeezing the ship. It was slowly being crushed by the ice and there was nothing they could do to stop it. They were starting to lose hope for the first time. By September, the sun was back and the temperature rose to almost 2 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 17 Celsius. This felt like a heat wave to the crew who was used to average winter temperatures of minus 56 degrees Fahrenheit and minus 49 degrees Celsius. By October of 1915, it was obvious to them that there was no saving the ship. They tried once again to chop it free, pumping out water that had flooded it, even tried starting the engines again, but it was all to no avail. Shackleton ordered them to abandon ship and feared they would sink or be crushed with it. The ship had been trapped for 10 months. If everything had gone to plan, they would have been nearly done with the entire expedition by now, but because of the ice, it had never even had a real chance of getting started. Everything was moved out onto the ice floes of the Weddell Sea, about 200 yards or 180 meters from the ship. They dubbed this new home Dump Camp because of all the supplies they would be leaving behind here. They set up tents and began rationing food. They brought two of the whaling boats, 22-foot vessels made of elm wood, off of the ship and would carry them with them in case they hit open water. Shackleton's new plan was to march over the ice to Paulet Island, 346 miles or 557 kilometers away. Shackleton knew of some food stores that had been left there in 1902 and was banking on finding them. Dragging the boats and supplies over the snow and ice would be incredibly arduous. The boats and sledges full of supplies weighed over a ton apiece. The ice wasn't smooth either, but full of pressure ridges two stories high in places and was blanketed by feet of snow at times. Everyone was allowed to bring only the clothes on their backs, two pairs of mittens, six pairs of socks, two pairs of boots, one sleeping bag, one pound of tobacco, and two pounds of personal items. Anyone with a diary was allowed to keep it. Hussey was allowed to bring his banjo, even though it weighed 12 pounds. And Frank Hurley was allowed his camera, which is why we have incredible pictures of the expedition that survived today. Shackleton was concerned about speed, so they left everything he thought they wouldn't need, including some of the animals. He ordered the smallest puppies to be shot, as well as the ship's cat, Mrs. Chippy. On October 30th, 1915, they began the march for Paulet Island. The way forward was grueling. The boat sank into the snow. It wouldn't stop snowing. Their sweat froze when it was exposed to the air, causing frostbite. After six days of this, they only made it a mile and a half. Continuing on this way was impossible. 
and Shackleton told them that they would once again make camp. They would have to camp on the ice again and hoped it drifted them in a favorable direction. The crew was disheartened that they had just trudged over the ice to stop and make camp a mile and a half from where they started. At this point, it became painfully obvious that they were going to need all of those supplies they had left behind at dump camp. They dubbed their new camp Ocean Camp. This would be their home for the next two months. The food was rationed and the crew was given as much seal and penguin meat as possible in order to conserve their supplies. The dogs were only given penguin meat now so that the crew could eat the dog food. Shackleton sent a party with a dog team to go retrieve their supplies. The team discovered that much of the ship had become submerged and many of the supplies they were hoping to retrieve were now irretrievable. But they were able to retrieve the third whaling boat that had been left behind at the ship. This would later prove to be a life-saving stroke of good luck. The plan was now to drift with the ice flows as far as they could until they thinned out enough for them to get in the boats and sail to land. They did drift, but in a circle almost exactly back to where they had started, and the ice now started melting in the summer sun. In November, the temperature rose above freezing for the first time. They knew the sun would eventually melt the ice, and their days on it were numbered. They could still see what was left of the Endurance a mile and a half away. They made frequent supply retrieval trips, but almost everything was irretrievable. Once the ice melted enough, the crushed ship sank to the bottom of the Weddell Sea, where it remains to this day. The ship was mourned by the crew almost as if it had been a person. It felt like their last connection with civilization had been truly severed. In his journal that night, Shackleton simply noted that the ship had sunk, adding, I cannot write about it. On December 20th, 1915, Shackleton declared it was time to move. Some of the crew wanted to leave. Some wanted to take their chance drifting with the ice and avoid the grueling torture of hauling everything over the slush. But they were not moving in a fair direction, and the ice was becoming increasingly thin. It was move or die. Again, Shackleton had them leave personal items as well as food supplies for the sake of speed. They began marching once again in December, and they had been on their journey over a year now. The march was difficult and slow. On one particularly hard day, they only made it 200 yards, 182 meters. The runners the boats were sliding on kept freezing, and breaking them free of the ice was a constant battle. The snow went over their knees and melted into their boots, adding an extra 7 pounds per foot. Every so often, one of them would fall through the ice and have to be rescued by the others. Conditions grew worse as the ice grew thinner. Eventually, their only option was to find the largest ice flow they could, make camp, and hope they didn't fall through. They had only made it 9 miles, or 14 kilometers, from their last camp. They could still not launch the boats, as the ice flows were violent and thick. Their boats would be crushed if they attempted to sail through the flows. They were, once again, trapped in the ice. All they could do was wait for an opening that would provide a path to open water so they could launch the boats. Shackleton sent dog teams to search for escape routes, but none were found. New Year's arrived and passed without celebration, heralding in the year 1916. They named their new camp Patience Camp. This would be their home for the next four months. Boredom, loneliness, and a reduction in rations began to wear on morale. They were only eating about half of the calories they needed each day, 
and they were becoming weaker. They were starting to get on each other's nerves at this point, too. In their diaries, they wrote of how annoyed they were at one another's sniffing and snoring, and it's obvious that at this time, tensions were high. The camp had to be moved every so often towards the center of the ice flow as pieces of it began to break off into the sea. Lack of food was a huge problem. One man was found chewing on an old, dirty cloth the cook had thrown outside because it had a splattering of some burnt dog food on it. Breakfast was cold dog food and a half ration of powdered milk. Lunch was one biscuit and three lumps of sugar. Dinner was seal meat or penguin hoosh. This was a mixture of penguin meat and snow. The dogs were surviving on the innards of animals the crew couldn't eat. These supplies would all eventually run out. Shackleton ordered the rest of the dogs to be shot, and the men ate them. This was particularly difficult, because they had truly loved them. Finally, four months later, when the ice flow they were camped on had gone from being a mile wide to only 200 yards or 180 meters in diameter, a small opening appeared in the ice, and Shackleton gave the order to launch the boats. The supplies were loaded, and the crew finally made it off of the ice and headed for open water. Before they hit open water, they had to navigate through dangerous ice flows. Many became seasick. They weren't sure where they would end up at this point. They were just trying to make it past the ice flows and glaciers. The boats were not made for navigating ice, and capsizing or being crushed was a constant worry. Their hands blistered on the oars. Wind cracked their lips. Sea spray froze to them. Many became frostbitten. Their eyes were all red from the sea spray. The boats took on water and constantly had to be bailed out. Shackleton wrote during this boat voyage, saying, quote, I do not think I have ever felt the anxiety that belongs to leadership quite so keenly, unquote. The temperature was now minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 20 degrees Celsius. This meant that their wet clothes became frozen clothes. One morning, when Worsley the Navigator fixed their position with his sextant, he discovered they were now 22 miles 35 kilometers further away from land than they had been. They had been going in the wrong direction. The state of the crew was now so dire that Shackleton started to worry some of them would not survive. Shackleton discussed their position with Worsley, and they decided to sail for Elephant Island, a desolate piece of unexplored volcanic rock that no human being had ever set foot on before. It was 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, to the northwest. They continued to sail, happy to finally have a destination. Almost everyone began to get saltwater boils that would burst and discharge pus. They were all dehydrated as no one grabbed ice or snow to melt before they hit open water. They had to suck on frozen seal meat to stave off their thirst. They had spent nearly 80 sleepless hours in the boats at this point. They finally spotted Elephant Island when they were 30 miles or 48 kilometers out. They were caught in a cross sea, and one of the boats became lost from the others, but they also managed to spot and land on the same beach. When they reached the island, it was the first time any of them had set foot on land in 497 days. Shackleton described it as, quote, "...that glittering hour of childhood when the door is open at last, and the Christmas tree in all its wonder bursts upon the vision." Unquote. Rickinson, one of the engineers, had a heart attack as soon as they landed. He somehow managed to survive it, even in his weakened state. They set up camp, ate, drank, and rested. 
the island was incredibly inhospitable. Even today, no one lives there. It was rocky, and the wind was relentless. Macklin the surgeon wrote, quote, A more inhospitable place could scarcely be imagined. The gusts increased in violence and became so strong that we could hardly walk against them, and there was not a lee or a scrap of shelter anywhere, unquote. The next day, April 20th, 1916, Shackleton announced he would be going on an open-water rescue mission. This was not a surprise to the crew, as no one knew they were alive, which meant no one was looking for them. Their only chance was to go find help. Elephant Island was desolate, and their chances of being found there were zero. Shackleton would take a crew of five on an 820-mile, 1,300-kilometer open-water boat journey through one of the planet's most violent seas in a 22-foot whaling boat that was not equipped for the journey. The destination was South Georgia. This was where their journey had started, and there was a whaling station there where they could recruit a rescue ship to come back for the 22 crew members that would be left waiting on Elephant Island. If this boat journey failed, all of them would die. Many volunteered to join him, but Shackleton had already decided who would be coming with him. McNish, the carpenter, would go. His skills would be needed to modify and upkeep the whaling vessel. He would take Thomas Crean, a seasoned sailor. He would also be taking Vincent, one of the trawlermen in charge of equipment. Vincent had been a bit of a bully at times, and Shackleton believed it was best to bring him for the sake of morale. He would take Timothy McCarthy, a sailor. McCarthy was strong, well-liked, and easy to get along with. Lastly, he would take Worsley the Navigator. South Georgia was small, and if they missed it, there would be nothing but open water until South Africa, 3,000 miles away. If they were going to make it, Shackleton would need his navigator. McNish made modifications to their boat, the Caird. These changes he made, like including ballast, creating a deck over the top with planks from the other ships to keep them safe from the sea, would be life-saving modifications. The other two boats would never sail again. They were upended and used as a shelter. Rocks and mud were used as makeshift walls. It would be an inadequate but livable shelter. Shackleton left Frank Wilde in command of the Elephant Island crew. Wilde had become Shackleton's closest and most trusted companion, and would prove to be a fine leader. The 22-foot wooden cared was equipped with six weeks of rations and two casks of fresh water. For navigation, they had only a sextant, binoculars, paper charts, a prismatic compass, and the mind of Worsley. They would be heading through the Drake Passage. It is, to this day, purported to be the roughest sea passage in the world. Their chances of survival were incredibly low. Shackleton and the others left as soon as the boat was ready and the rations were packed. The 22 men left behind waved as the small craft, their only hope, bobbed out of sight over the horizon. It was April 24th, 1916. Right away, Shackleton and his companions began experiencing some of the hardships that they had on the first boat journey. Temperatures below freezing that grew worse at night, sea spray from the waves crashing alongside the boat that was not equipped to handle them. Soon, everything was soaked and would stay that way. Their freshwater casks had cracked, and salt water turned their only supply brackish. This would cause dangerous levels of dehydration. 
They hit terrible storms, huge ocean swells that nearly capsized them constantly. Worsley calculated wind gusts of 128 miles, or 205 kilometers per hour. Ice formed all over the boat, causing it to sink slowly, and they had to constantly chop at it to keep it from sinking, even during storms and throughout the night. Water had to be constantly bailed out of the boat. The Drake Passage is part of the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, which is the strongest ocean current on the planet, five times more powerful than the Gulf Stream. 30-foot, or 9-meter waves are common, and in 2017, an 80-foot, or 24-meter wave was recorded. That's the largest wave on record in the Southern Hemisphere. I cannot express how unlikely it was that these six men were going to make it through this alive. Just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse, the rope holding their sea anchor snapped from being frozen, and their anchor was lost. On May 8th, 14 days into their boat journey, they spotted South Georgia. The interior of the island was not charted, and they had no way of knowing what part of the island they were looking at. It took two more days for them to find a safe landing zone they could reach. It had been a 16-day harrowing boat journey, and finally they were able to make a landing. The last time they had set foot on South Georgia was 522 days ago, when they had left for an expedition they would never even get to begin. They calculated they were on the south side of the island, which was the wrong side. They had two options. One, they could get back in a rudderless, anchorless boat, take their chances in the rocks and rough waters to sail 130 miles, 209 kilometers, to Leith Harbor, where the whaling station was. It was clear the boat would not make the journey. It would probably have meant certain death. The second option was to walk over an uncharted island full of glaciers, crevasses, and sheer ice cliffs that also probably led to certain death. This would be the route they chose. It would be a 29-mile, 46-kilometer journey as the crow flies, but much further with the peaks and glaciers they would have to navigate. Not everyone was physically able to make the journey, and Shackleton was gunning for speed. McNish the carpenter would stay behind, Vincent would as well. McCarthy would also be staying behind, as he would need to watch after the other two. Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley the navigator would make the journey overland. They would be the first people in history to do so. McNish hammered nails through the three men's boots to act as makeshift crampons. They took three days of rations, 50 feet of rope, and a carpenter's ads that they were planning on using as an ice axe. They were severely under-equipped for this trek, but it was their only option. After a few days of waiting for favorable weather, Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley left to journey over an uncharted island. The next successful expedition to do so would be in 1955, and they would have a lot more than a carpenter's ads and 50 feet of rope. Meanwhile, there were still 22 men stranded back on Elephant Island, and their situation wasn't much better than Shackleton's. As time went on, they grew less optimistic about rescue. They hunted penguins, seals, and other island birds as most of their rations were gone. Many were suffering from ailments, and the two physicians on the crew were busy. Rickinson, the engineer, was still recovering from his heart attack. Hudson, the navigator, was suffering from a terrible abscess he developed on the boat journey. It grew to the size of a football, and the physicians had to drain it of two pints of horribly smelling fluid. Green Street, the first officer, was dealing with frostbite on his feet that had nearly crippled him. Kerr, another engineer, had to have a tooth pulled with no anesthesia. 
Blackborough the stowaway, who probably wished he hadn't stowed away, had developed gangrene in his foot from frostbite, and all the toes on his right foot had to be amputated. The pack ice reappeared by June and surrounded the island, so no rescue ship could approach. When the sun went down on yet another winter, their only light came from blubber oil lamps lit by surgical bandages for wicks. Sanitation was a huge issue. Penguin guano mixed with water runoff from the cliffs above flooded their hut. They started calling the hut the sty because it was so dirty. Boredom and mental strain were also serious issues. Macklin, one of the physicians, wrote in his diary, quote, My mind is becoming terribly blank. I lie for hours without even so much as thinking in a sort of vacuous state, unquote. All they could do was wait and hope for four months that Shackleton and the others were still alive. At 2 a.m., May 15, 1916, Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley set out to walk across South Georgia. The trek was not easy. The snow was soft, making breaking trail difficult. They had to climb up and down steep ridges, and much of the time they had only moonlight glowing off of the snow to see their way forward. Worsley had a map of South Georgia, but it didn't do them much good, because the center of it was blank. They were on uncharted land. They became lost several times, having to backtrack and lose valuable time. They tied their rope to one another in case one of them were to fall down a hidden crevasse. At time, they had to chop handholds and footholds with their ads. They stopped only for short meals. They were weak, tired, and had been constantly moving. Once after a short rest, they began falling asleep. Shackleton woke with a jolt and shook the other two awake. He was afraid if they fell asleep in the snow, they would never wake up again. After around 36 hours of trekking, they heard the 6.30 a.m. steam whistle from the whaling station in Leith Harbor. They knew then that they were on the right track. From their position, it was only a couple more hours of hiking before they reached civilization. At the station, they found Thorolf Sorrel, a man they had met before their expedition had started. Sorrel didn't recognize Shackleton, and like everyone else, believed he and his crew were dead. It's said that when Sorrel finally realized it was Shackleton, he wept. The three were given food, bathed for the first time in a year and a half, and were given news of World War I, which they had no way of knowing was still raging. Sorrel ordered a whaling vessel to go retrieve the other three men still waiting on the other end of the island. Worsley went with the rescue crew, and when he picked up his comrades, clean-shaven and in clean clothes, his crewmates, who had spent every day of the expedition with him, did not recognize him because he was so clean. There were still 22 stranded crew members 800 miles away on Elephant Island. Shackleton wanted to rescue them right away, but finding a ship that could navigate the pack ice was impossible. It would be another three months and take several attempts before the crew left on Elephant Island would be rescued. The Chilean government donated a tugboat called the Yelcho to Shackleton's cause, and on August 30th, 1916, the rest of the crew was rescued. They had left England on the 8th of August, 1914, almost two years prior. Shackleton was surprised to hear that all of them were still alive, the only casualties being Blackborough's toes. Every single one of them, beyond all odds, made it out alive. After returning home, most of them enlisted and joined the British Armed Forces of World War I. 
Several would be killed in action, which seems horrendously unfair after having survived their ordeal. Several lived well into old age. Some of the crew actually returned to Antarctica on other expeditions. This included Shackleton. Shackleton volunteered for the army when he returned home. He began drinking, heavily. He published the book South, which is his written account of the expedition. He went on a lecture circuit until 1920 and was able to raise funds for another expedition. Several of the crew who had been on the Endurance went with him, itching for another adventure with their leader. This time, he wanted to circumnavigate the Antarctic continent and explore some of the lesser-known islands along the way. On the voyage down, he suffered a heart attack, his second one. He refused to cancel the expedition, so it continued. His ship docked once again at South Georgia Island. And that is where he died, after suffering another heart attack on January 5, 1922. He was 47 years old. He is buried in South Georgia, in the Old Whaler Cemetery next to the ruins of the Old Whaling Station, the place where their journey had begun and ended. Where a crew of 27 plus one stowaway pulled off the greatest escape of all time. Thank you for listening to their story. That is the super-condensed, cliff-note version of Shackleton and the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. If you liked it, you should check out that five-episode series I did last year. It goes into so much more detail. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you, so stay tuned, friends. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me, as always, at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can join the ranks of the best patrons in all existence at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. The link for that can be accessed on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme songs from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay excellent, stay warm. And until we meet again... Go make some history.